week of April 16th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 615, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And on the picket line, I'm Michael Gill. Strike, strike, strike. Uh, you're striking because why? You know what? Uh, Here's the thing. They don't, people don't know. I do much of the text. Now we riff, we improvise, but there's text written for everything. Bullet points. I, I will double your salary. I will double your salary. Really? Yes. Uh, because a strike, strike ended. That's uh, wonderful. 100% of zero. That's, that's exactly what the, that's what mm. the, the streamer should say to, uh, to all of the, well, the double residuals. <laughs> well, double your residuals from zero to zero. And if they can't add, all is done. Um, so it, we're recording on Monday, April 17th. The producers just announced, yes, a strike vote authorization is inevitable. Uh, so the next stage is moving on. They're still negotiating. Wait, Hopefully the producers announced it or the writers announced it? The writers the announced producer, it. The producers announced that a strike vote authorization was inevitable. That vote is coming today on right. Monday. And the okay. producer said, we know it's going to be authorized and we know we've still got a lot of work to do if we want to avoid a strike and that seems unlikely and now i know you're headed to CinemaCon next week is the writer's strike the looming writer's strike going to throw a pall over that event i don't think so i think uh you know there everybody will be coming down from their super mario brothers high uh <laughs> and of course the flash is 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 a quick follow-on if it's any good uh it's supposed uh, they're claiming it's good you know, think about it. They're last in line. They're so far downstream movie theaters that while, yes, they know that they will be affected in some way, they aren't really facing that right now. So they can ignore it because it's a year away. The production that stops now will give them problems come Christmas or next year. Correct. More like uh, like 18 months, 24 months down the line. When all of a sudden, yeah. remember, do you remember spec? I think it was, spec, I can't remember which one it was, but boy, that was a bad James Bond. And, you know, that was because, you know, you had all of these people on set. They were like, oh, this would be great if you, oh, you can't say that because then I'm, I will have written dialogue for you and I'm not allowed to write dialogue. So. <laughs> Yes, well, riffing and improvising on set is not quite the way to make a great Bond film anyway. But uh, that's something that could be threatened, the movies that will be coming out next year and the year after. Uh, and, of course, some stuff that won't be as affected, perhaps, is reality shows. They always said, oh, reality shows. But they actually have a lot of writers. Um, so, so reality television is much more uh, sophisticated and unionized than it used to be. So it will be affecting them as well. Not that you'd know it from Love is Blind. That's the Netflix series that tried to have a live reunion show last night on Sunday night. Netflix, not known for the live programming, and now we know why. It was an epic, epic disaster. Delayed for hours. People still can't watch it online even right now, though I've seen reviews out. Uh, one cast member describing their experience on the show said, you know, we've already been punished enough because everybody looks so bad on the show. He said, quote, we all did something stupid. End quote. And now Netflix can say the same. I mean, it was really, really bad. <laughs> no wonder they don't want to do sports. Well, I mean, do you think that's the reason they don't want to do sports? Well, they have no practice doing live television, that's all. But I mean, we do a live podcast, semi-live, sort of live. What are we going to talk about this week? Well, this week on Showbiz... Oh, oh, and there will be no show next week. You will be at CinemaCon. I don't think we made that clear. Yes, that is correct. I will be Bummer. There. Fine. Leave us alone. We'll talk amongst ourselves. We don't need you. 
You probably don't actually. You know, that's uh, a good. Except for the whole recording thing, and yeah. people get sick of me enough as it is talking. Although for ninety minutes, you know, God help me. Well, you know, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we we're going to be discussing a lot of. Um, I guess, what would you call it? like stuff, really? Mm-hmm. Because it's been a hectic week, at least for us. So we're a little out of sorts. Sadly, you probably won't even notice, but things <laughs> happened, indeed. At 92 years old, Clint Eastwood just announced the next movie he'll be directing. When I st- first started reading that sentence, I thought that it was going to end with, at 92 years old, Clint Eastwood just announced that the last movie he, he directed will be his last. No, no, he's actually talking about the next movie he's directing. <laughs> So I guess that means we can keep doing this podcast for at least, what, another 40 or 50 years. Yeah, thanks a lot, Clint. Thanks we can, for that. Yeah, our audience will thank him, too. Yeah. Uh, yet another exhibitor-related business uh, declared b- bankruptcy, by the way, last week. So more movie theater news. We'll explain what it means. On Inside Baseball, we'll say, hi, Max. That's hi, Max. right. Yeah, HBO plus Warner Brothers Discovery, Warner Max, I don't know. They, they, they say, hey, just call us Max. We're on a first name basis now. We've got the details on how it's shaking out and the many, many plans they have to make, offer you. Make To, to make more stu- stuff. Yeah, yeah they're going to make more stuff. I think, uh, what did they announce? Like uh, Harry Potter everything? Pretty don't much? spoil everything. Okay, well, stuff seems to be the word of the day. Okay, that's what I know. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. Mamma mia, we're looking at box office around the world for the weekend in April 16th and the Super Mario Brothers movie. Huge, huge second that, week. That was the most accent that movie has gotten at all since it has no accent. <laughs> $315 $315 this week. It passed $500 million on Thursday, and that's why we talk about the entire week's box office. It added like $110, $20 million on Monday through Thursday. That's real money, people. It totally, this week, made $315 million. It's Monday. They've just passed $700 million, but as of Sunday, it hit the $693 million mark. This is going to blow past $1 billion. This is a monster, monster hit. Now, in the United States, in the United States, what do you think the cut Universal Acts Ask For is? Like, if you had to take a guess. 55%. You'd be off by a factor of, this is where actually math is important. So children, mm-hmm. keep studying math. Because if I had and paid attention in math class, I could have done this in my head. But You don't need to. Just tell us what the answer is. 70%. Wow. For independence. For independence. Wow. Well, what are the chains getting? Uh, of course, nobody knows, but they think, of course, it's going to be less than 70%. And they only told a lot of these exhibitors, a lot of the smaller, smaller exhibitors, like on Saturday night, they'd already played the movie for a day. And they How only can they told, do that? Uh, yeah, well, that's, you know, because the Paramount decree is pretty much over, so they can do what they can do that. It's, yeah. Is it's, that for the entire run of the movie? Uh, yes, for the entire run of the movie. That's they say insane. actually, actually, I have been told that it, it, it. They say it's going to go down. They claim that that uh, you know after a week or two, it might go down. Now, I will say this is exactly how movies were priced. Film rental was priced back in the eighties and the sixties and the seventies. Uh, well, maybe not the sixties, but definitely the the late seventies and eighties and early nineties. It was seventy percent, maybe one down or two down, meaning seventy percent for the first two weeks, sixty percent for the next two weeks, but. 
remember, movies used to stay in theaters. Six months, a year. <laughs> exactly. Well, if you were a hit. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, by and its they didn't week. They didn't open up a lot on what massive wide screens either. I mean, that, Correct. They, they started to, but yeah. Right. And so if you were like, you know, a big hit, you're playing that movie in week five, you're only paying 35% film rental. That's why those movies stuck what? around for so long. It kept going down? Oh, yeah. It, it, it floored. The, the minimum was 35%. So it would go down to 35. And that was a way for the distributor to incentivize the movie theater operator to keep the movie in theaters because, you know, hey, you get to collect most of the money after all. 70%. That's outrageous. Yeah. Is that what Disney's getting now all the time? That, is that just well, that's, that's illumination. That's, you know. No, I know. I'm asking what Disney, like, is that what all the big studios are asking? That Disney was the big player with, you know, everything Marvel, Star Wars, and Pixar. What I was just, told by more than a few exhibitors is this was more than Avatar. Wow. Yeah. And, and, but why would they, I mean, they well, didn't agree. You're telling me they played, I don't, I don't understand any of this. There should be a story about it. Are you doing a story about it? Because that's I kind of outrageous. That I'm sounds like to. a bad business, illegal business practice. People take a movie and then you tell them in the middle of the run, oh, by the way, this is how much we're taking? Well, and, and apparently there's a lot of stuff in the master license agreements where you pretty much have to agree to certain things. It's, I, I predict, much like I predicted the writers would go on strike, if you recall, I said they're definitely going to strike. I said that months ago. Okay, uh, Jimmy the Greek, what are you predicting now? I think that in 10 years' time, within the next 10 years, maybe, maybe 10 or 15 years, there will be uh, legislation at least suggested to regulate how movies are, are booked into cinemas. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. That's crazy. And by the way, uh, we've talked before about endless, you know, the trades should not be PR publicists for the studios. This is like the seventh update from the trades about a cast member put into Lilo and Stitch, the live action version of the Disney animated film. Nanny's love interest has been cast. I mean, people, come on. This has been one a day or every two days for the last two weeks that they've announced casting for Lilo and Stitch. This is not gone with the wind where we need to know. And this is an email alert. That's ridiculous. So we've got a lot to be angry about. The Super Mario Brothers movie made $315 million worldwide. John Wick Chapter 4 made another $44 million. That's at $350 million worldwide. That's the most for any one film in the franchise so far. Russell Crowe has a big movie, The Pope's Exorcist. That had a great hold, $25 million this week. It's at $37 million and counting with, I think, a lot of territories to go. The Ben Affleck, Matt Damon production, Air, that made another $23 million. That's at $54 million and counting, counting down the days till it premieres on Amazon about 30 days after it debuts, even though this is the sort of film that should have legs. Yes, and, it, and here's, a, here's a movie where I went to see it last Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And remember when I was trying to look, you know, during last week's episode, I was looking at different theaters where I could go see it where some of the good it was, seats. It was exciting, yes. And uh, <laughs> yes, it was exciting watching you scroll through movie theaters. But uh, at the movie theater right around the corner from me, uh, they moved the film into a much bigger auditorium because it was doing so well. They actually moved it into the theater where Super Mario Brothers was playing. And guess what? That movie made $20 million last Tuesday, tw- uh, Super Mario Brothers. Air, I think it made like $1.5 million on a Tuesday. That's not bad for a movie like that. No, but they got a big, much bigger cut. So do you think they put air into a bigger theater because they didn't want to sell out because they could make more money per ticket? Yes, I think so. And, and, oh, and they kind of looked at it and went, yeah, Super Mario Brothers, nobody's showing up at 8.30 at night to see this movie. 
Well, I don't know why. With that level of money, they must be. I mean, maybe not on a Tuesday, but people are showing up and made a lot of money during the weekdays. Yeah, $20 million a day? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Well, you're con- contradicting yourself. You just said nobody was showing up at 8 p.m. on a Tuesday. Yeah, okay. I am contradicting right. myself. Thank All you right. for calling that out. And Sorry, I just didn't understand what you were trying to say. Air made $23 million. So did Dungeons & Dragons. That's at now at $157 million worldwide. That equals the budget. So it's got a lot of way to go. The Japanese animated film Suzumi made another $23 million. That's at $275 million worldwide. Jackie Chan is chugging along with his new film Ride On, basically in China. That made $11 million. So did The Three Musketeers d'Artagnan, a French retelling of the classic Alexandre Dumas tale. Uh, This is part one of two. It made $11 million this week. It's at $17 million in counting. I don't don't know how wide it went in France, Um, and it hasn't opened up in other territories, so we'll have to see where it ends up, but they've spent $80 million total on these two movies to tell the tale of the three musketeers i'm not even sure when part two comes out but if you know more about it tell us yes you can write to us dirt at showbizsandbox.com that's d-i-r-t at showbizsandbox.com you can also call and leave us a voicemail the number to call is 888-567-SAND that's 888-567-7263 we're also on twitter we're at showbizsandbox is our handle at least for now and we're on uh on facebook oh. <laughs> facebook.com slash showbiz sandbox i know i know mike michael kind of gave me the really look like, what? I mean, what? Hey, but now I, I realize what you were saying yes yes i got it uh your old boss by the way nicholas cage he has a new movie out it's renfield or renfeld perhaps make 10 million dollars on its opening week uh, the chinese drama hachiko Adorable film about a professor and his loyal dog made $8 million. It's at $35 million and counting. Looking f- down for something to talk about. Uh, a bunch of movies made about $3 million, including His Only Son, the faith-based film that made $3 million this week. It's at $12 million and counting. Uh, this is a successful wide release, and we believe the first crowd-funded wide release in history. Right, Sperling? Yeah, I mean, I'm still trying to reach somebody to to get a quote from them, and uh, I think they're too busy doing their wide release, which makes sense. I mean, if they're kind of shoestringing a wide release, they're pretty much doing everything. Uh, Mafia Mama did not open very well. That's from director Catherine Hardwick uh, and stars Tony Collette. It made $2 million in its opening week. But Avatar, you mentioned Avatar. Uh, Avatar, The Way of Water. Somebody went to see it last week. It made $2 million. And also... So did Titanic in China. Titanic opened up in China like last week, I think. And it made another two million. They're like, I know you, you passed us up, but we're not done yet. <laughs> so they're both chugging along at the movie theaters. God bless you, James Cameron. If only he released a movie a week. And in specialty houses, uh, the Ari Aster film, Bo is Afraid, uh, that made $80,000 in four theaters. So a great specialty house opening for that oh my mother movie Bo is afraid now there's one thing i don't understand there was a story about air and its soundtrack and the story was innocuous and said ben affleck's soundtrack of songs from the 80s helped inspire the soundtrack well not surprising but they were talking to the music supervisor and they explained the film didn't have a big budget for its music Okay. So much, so much of compiling the soundtrack was asking artists and music publishers to trust the film and its story. The, the budget we've seen reported is $90 million. They didn't have any budget for music? I, I don't On know. On what how t- planet I, is that possible? I don't know how accurate that $90 million is. 
Well, I, if it's $40 million, they've got a movie. They've got Cindy Lauper, Bruce Springsteen, all these people. They're like, oh, we really don't have any money. We're making this, this labor of love with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, you know, that's going to sell to Amazon for $130 million. Can you cut us a break? Really? <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. But I hope you can tell me and what's going on with National Cinemedia. That's, they're like a theater advertising network, right? They're the, they're the people that put up the stuff that you have to sit through when you're waiting for the, theater, for the movie to begin, right? Correct. So this is both complicated and not complicated. So they are the cinema advertising network in the United States, the largest one. They were mm-hmm. formed uh, originally by the three largest exhibitors. Uh, AMC, Regal, and Cinemark. Oh, there's, there's the, oh, okay. Now I understand. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Now I understand. Why are they having problems? Nuff said. <laughs> well, so in 2007, what happened is they restructured. They said, okay, we're going to form a holding company and put that holding company in charge of NCM LLC and, mm-hmm. and uh, we're going to go public. And when they went public, they basically paid the original founders, uh, AMC, Regal, and Cinemark, close to $680 million for the exclusive rights to play <laughs> advertising in their, in, their, uh, in their cinemas for 30 years. So that was what they were, that's what they did. But of course, you know what happens when you file for bankruptcy, you get to cancel or reject contracts like, say, a lease. You could say, I don't like this lease anymore. It, I, can't, I can't make money in that location. I reject the lease. Well, lo and behold, Regal, which is effectively, if not one of the owners, then certainly one of the, it, they certainly make money from their- Well, I thought they went public. So it's, it's, it depends how much stock they own. It's right, like, exactly. And that's, ex- and there's all these like contingency fees of like, oh- right. It's all a complicated financial mess because Regal is restructuring under bankruptcy. AMC has $5 billion in debt. And what's happening to Cinemark? Uh, Cinemark is fine, but here's the oh, problem. Good. Here's the problem. <laughs> So Regal has rejected the exclusive agreement with, with National uh, Cinemedia. Yeah, with NCM, which of course then would make NCM an unviable company. They, mm-hmm. like, would, they would have no reason to exist. And they're basically going to court to say, hey, I know you're in bankruptcy, but you can't just reject this exclusive agreement that you signed with us because we've already paid you the money. Well, then we Regal's you- not an owner or they wouldn't want to screw themselves over and, and, and bankrupt a company they have a stake in, right? Well, they don't care. That's the, that's the point. Like, it's, so, it's worth so little to them at this point that they would actually be better off going and cutting a deal with somebody else for exclusive <laughs> access right. to their theaters. So it's, a, so it's not just about them restructuring themselves for Chapter 11 to sort of say, oh, we had a problem with the pandemic and now we want to get back well, on no, the feet. No, they actually have more, they have more existential problems going on here. Correct. Now, of course, the existential problems are is they were closed. Theaters were closed down for two years. They couldn't right, actually. Right. Um, right. We know. But the existential problem here is is that um, with NCM, it's a very clean cut bankruptcy. It was a pre arranged bankruptcy. They like went to court saying, "Here's our restructuring agreement. Here's how we're going to do this. Uh, we're going to pay off all our unsecured lenders if if they just take the two point four million dollars they're owed." Uh, and there's one hiccup. If Regal reje- is able to reject that contract, it doesn't matter. Like they're going to go, they, they, there is no business to speak of. Now, here's the thing. On the Regal side, on the Cineworld side, the whole fight between NCM and that uh-huh. court case, that lawsuit 
has to be settled before Cineworld can exit bankruptcy. So it's like a battle of dueling debtors. <laughs> this must be like heaven for, for a celluloid junkie. This is just, ah, it's right in your wheelhouse. Exhibitors, advertising. <laughs> they're suing and each other. They're There's suing a fight. Each other. And, and, and you don't want to cover it and get anybody angry at you because you're sort of an industry, you know. Oh, uh, I, we've definitely. Yeah, but we've gotten people angry. But for, through covering the Cineworld bankruptcy, people have definitely gotten angry with us because we've basically reported it accurately. We said, here's what was said in court. Yeah. That's like, all how you can dare do. you? And they said, how dare you? You're yeah. like, what? We, what but, can we do? We're not out to get you. <laughs> well, they're tightening their belts. Everybody's tightening their belts. Amazon is tightening its belts. The Amazon CEO, Andy Jassy, I wish I could say this. He took a $210 million pay cut. Wow. He's only getting $1.3 million in compensation this year or last year. Amazing. Jeff Bezos, he only got $1.7 million. But there is somebody at Amazon cashing in. It's Amazon Web Services Chief Adam Salipsky. Uh, this must be his year. He gets $41 million. But he better sock some of that away because it's a lot of one-time compensation. So he, he can't expect to do that again next year. But what they don't detail, okay. It's the stock options. And the stock. 41, $41 million, of course. But what we don't know is if they also get Amazon Prime for free. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. Because you'd want to factor that into their total compensation package, I think. I think actually it is. It probably is, right? It I mean, probably, I probably hope so, you know. It'd be a little thing that said, by the way, you owe us $175, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, uh, take it out of my $1.7 million. Uh, I don't know what to do about Gerard Depardieu. He's one of the great actors of all time. But for many years now, he's been kind of a mess. Uh, he's credibly accused of sexual misconduct by 13 women in a news story in the French media. Uh, he faces a criminal trial for raping an actress, the daughter of a longtime friend. Years earlier, he also described taking part in many rapes as a child, though later insisting his words were mistranslated, and he was really saying he just witnessed many rapes growing up. Uh, now a new report in the French media includes 13 women who detail sexual misconduct by Depardieu while filming from 20, 2004 to last year. So these are some very fresh charges. He, of course, denies all the charges, and in recent years, he's embraced Putin, denied Ukraine was a country. That was years before Russia invaded and now claims citizenship in the uae nonetheless yeah. he's still a great actor <laughs> you know here's the thing when, when the french media when you're french and you're a beloved french figure as gerard depardieu is okay, has been has or has been. been yes that's true when the french media turns against you you For sexual know, misconduct <laughs> you know you're i mean i'm sure the french media was like oh that was just kisses that was just oh that you were just that's a french gri oh no no that that right there that's sexual no no that's you went too far yeah, yeah you know you're in a, trouble it's a big deal when the French media comes hard down, comes down hard on you. That's for sure. I could barely get that out. And all I wanted to do was say big deal. Oh, I see. Because it's time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines and entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, Phantom of the Opera closed yesterday. Were you there? The Phantom of the Opera is here. Um, well, I'm in Birmingham, Alabama. So no, the music of the night wafted towards me, but it was very faint. Okay. Well, then maybe we should talk about uh, these new safety rules, uh, because okay. in the wake of the tragic and entirely avoidable death on the set of the film Rust, Hollywood is poised to support legislation with new rules for safety. 
Under the proposed guidelines, firearms would only be allowed on set under certain circumstances. As well, any crew member involved in overseeing the firearms would need a state permit and safety training and federal documentation to possess a firearm. Not a bad idea. Ammunition would be banned, except when it isn't. And California's OSHA, the Division of Occupational Safety and Health, would have oversight over everything. Finally, there will be a pilot program for the role of safety advisor on every set, an independent person whose only job would be safety, including a written risk assessment before filming begins, an on-set presence, and safety meetings at the beginning of each day. This would begin in 2025, last five years, and then be reassessed. But first, it has to go through two committees, uh, I guess probably two uh, legislative Bef- bodies. Before in California. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so is this a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, it seems like a big whoop. Uh, safety person seems like a perfectly good idea. I'm sure the director will do whatever they say. Um, maybe the safety advisor and the intimacy coordinator can uh, carpool together to the set to save money. Uh, but in general, it's like, you don't need guns and you don't need ammunition, live ammo on a film set. They don't do it in most of the rest of the world. The only reason we're sticking with it is because there are people who have invested in tons of weapons that they want to rent to Hollywood. And that whole industry built up around using actual weapons, which is so absurd and people die. And we're going to have somebody else die in the future. And it's completely unnecessary. Yeah. You know, I think I'm sure like, you know, there were, there are production coordinators and producers going, oh, another on-set right. meeting at yeah, the beginning God of the for, day. God, God forbid. To which About I say, safety. <laughs> you know what? It's, it's a pilot program. Figure out what works. Figure out what doesn't work. Change what doesn't work and move on. That's, that's yeah. the way to, to do this. Now, speaking of moving on, National Public Radio is quitting Twitter. The media company objects to Elon Musk's social platform labeling NPR as somehow government controlled. Now, that's a designation saved for propaganda put out by Russia and China and the like. So like TASS, T-A-S-S, that would be considered, you know, a government controlled entity because it's a government controlled entity. Uh, First, Twitter said NPR was state affiliated media. Embarrassingly, Twitter's own explanation of what the label meant used NPR as an example of media that wasn't government-controlled and government-funded propaganda. Instead of correcting the label, it deleted the explanation. Then it labeled, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one way to do it. Sure. <laughs> Where, where's my dictionary? I've got to cross something out. Uh, then, it, then it labeled NPR as government-funded, even though NPR had already pointed out it gets less than 1% of its funding via the Corporation for Public Broadcasting or Corporation of Public Broadcasting. Or, by the way, yeah, yeah, other federal agencies and departments don't give much money either. Even at the state level, the majority of its funding comes from donations and the like. PBS and the BBC, though, both have independent editorial control, are a little different. From now, or at least for now, NPR is walking away from Twitter. And a day or two later, PBS said, we're doing the same. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, It's probably a big whoop. It would seem like it's a big whoop. So what? They leave Twitter. But I can't tell you how many email alerts and panic threats like things I get from people who have newsletters and things that I subscribe to who say, this is how I use Twitter to reach my audience. This is the only wide, you know, only wide social media platform that really lets me draw in an audience. People can search hashtags for the topics I discuss. They find me. This is how I get new readers and new members and new contributors. It doesn't work as well on Facebook, I guess. They're really worried. They're really, um, you know, they don't want to be on it. They're worried about how they're treated. Their their posts are getting wildly downgraded. Someone who writes about the climate crisis, it's a newsletter called Heated, 
they said you can track and see how like a month months ago my stuff would get traction now if you use climate crisis or climate control or uh, these words in your thing they immediately it looks like throttle your attention and make sure you're not getting posted and spread as much so there's a lot of a lot of feedback for it it's one more argument why some of these extremely broad Social platforms maybe should be nationalized. Maybe they're just too important to leave to a single company. Everybody uses it at some point. It should just be the public commons. Yeah, the problem is it's it's such a pain in the neck to uh, moderate that stuff. And I mean, you know what it's like trying to. You know what it's like when we get got uh, our videos taken down because we had, you know, uh, you know, trailer clips in it. And so you can't automate it necessarily. In the Washington Post this past weekend, there was a, a, uh, a headline. It said, a year ago, Elon Musk, Musk asked, is Twitter dying? He may have his answer. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning like, yeah, congratulations. You killed it. Because I, I am hardly on it anymore because it's, it's kind of degraded. The conversation there, has, are, do you use Twitter at all? No, I post links on it, but I never look at Twitter or try to find things on Twitter. Yeah, I've tried. I don't, it, I don't, I don't scroll through Twitter, no. And the whole blue check mark thing, it's like, yeah, you've kind of turned it into, it, it's, you've turned it into a less valuable property and a yep. less valuable tool. Now, you might remember when we talked about the long-running Tom Selleck drama Blue Bloods. That was just last week. It was renewed for a 14th season after producers and the top cast took serious pay cuts in their compensation to keep the show rolling. The longer a series runs, the more costs can creep up until suddenly it's not profitable anymore. But the move on that show wasn't a one-off for an especially big hit. It was what is referred to as a trend. When NBC renewed all six of its Dick Wolf produced shows like The Law and Orders and The Chicago's and who knows what else he's got going on now, they also cut a deal. Most actors agreed not to appear in every episode. Their pay per episode, the all-important quote, wasn't lowered. They just got fewer episodes, maybe 18 rather than 22. The same is true for the sitcom Bob Hart's Abishola. Folks took a pay cut around 20%. So that means Universal, Warner Brothers TV, and CBS Studios all agreed to these measures to keep their shows on the air. Big deal or big whoop? <coughs> Pardon me. That's a lot of studios. Universal, Warner Brothers TV, CBS. It's not one place. Everybody's doing it. So that is a big deal, I think. Uh, now, Bob Hart's Abishola, that's hitting its fifth season. That's the season they're about to do. That used to be the magical, all-important season, because once you'd done five seasons, you had over 100 episodes on a major network, and that was huge. That was where the paychecks started pouring in. I'm not sure what the incentive now is to keep it going, but you know, it's a hit. They're happy. They want to keep it going. They like the jobs. Um, as far as the 20% quote that we gave, uh, the reason I said it was around 20% was because the trade said it was less than 25%. I'm like, okay, well, then it's probably not 4%. So I figure less than 25% means around 20%, right? Right. That's so that's how, that's how I did that. But yeah, this is, you know, people want these shows to keep running. Uh, the thing about the quote is very interesting. Having the actors only appear in like 18, cut out for, you figure, why not just pay them a little bit less and let them be in whatever episodes they need to be in? That's because actors want their quote what they can tell other people they get paid per episode to be as high as possible. So when they are guest starring or appearing in a news show, they can say, my quote is bang. 
My quote is 27,000. They don't want to say 22,000, even if they get 22,000 for 100 episodes and only got 27,000 for one episode. They want that quote to be as high as possible. I learned that from casting directors. Okay, hold on to your seats, people. Okay, okay. you ready? Mm-hmm. Because uh, this one's going to be, well, you'll see. Because, hey, Bad Bunny, that's not so bad, Bad Bunny. Billboard reports that the expansive genre of Latin music hit a record $1 billion in revenue for North America in 2022. Latin music grew substantially faster than the market as a whole, led by Puerto Rican singer, superstar, Bad Bunny, the most popular act in the world last year, and also a headliner at Coachella this past weekend, I might add. I'm sorry you weren't there. Uh, well, yeah, I missed uh, Blackpink, but I watched them on YouTube. Uh, but, you know, here's the thing. Other key acts include, now this is where you're going to have to hold on, okay? Oh, okay. Uh, Spain's Rosalia, Colombia's Carol G, Puerto Rico's Rao Alejandro, and favorites of Michael, like the Mexican-American band Eslabon Armado, Puerto Rican singers Il Lee, Illy. Illy, Mexican singer Silvana Estrada, and Spain's Viguela, okay? Oh, muy bien, muy bien. Yeah, I think that you just put all those in there. You were just like, which one will he... St- which- I just wanted to show that Latin music covers a lot of different countries and people and styles. To Not to say Latin, go, look, Mexican-American, Puerto Rican, Mexican... Spain. There are people all over the world. Spain, yeah. So just to let you know how broad that genre name is. Well... If Latin oh, music there you is, go. Yeah. We mentioned where they are. To emphasize, yeah, there you go. I had it in the next sentence. <laughs> yeah. If Latin music is the future, uh, then uh, that future is in streaming. Some 97% of all revenue came from streaming. Most of that was via music subscriptions like Spotify and Amazon Music. But 21% was from YouTube and Vivo and the like, where people watch music videos via ad-supported services. Physical sales, you know, like CDs and vinyl? Yeah, they're virtually non-existent. A total $12.2 million, which uh, is like what our pay here is at uh, showbiz sandbox so we should be yeah able to, yeah that's actually less than one percent so is that a, this a big deal or a big whoop well the growth of the genre is a big deal the the artist it embraces is a big deal it's coming from all over the world and uh, it's cool to see okay this next story i'm gonna have to ask michael ahead of time to, oh, to calm, so da- calm down calm down all right all right all right I mean, he loves this annual event. It's when the Library of Congress announces new additions to its National Registry of Sound Recordings. Now, I have Woo-hoo! to, I'm going to, yeah, spoiler alert, once again, Chobis Sandbox not among them. Uh, uh. The, the selections do range, however, from 1908 to 2010 and include classical jazz, pop, rhythm and blues, news reports, and more. Also in the mix, the very first music recorded for a video game. And in this case, the timely edition of the theme from Super Mario Brothers by Koji Kondo. Big dealer, big whoop. Oh, it's a big deal. It's very exciting. We've got a list of all the recordings that they've included, and they range from the very first mariachi recordings done in 1908-1909 right up to most recently a uh, I think it's a, a, con- a concerto for clarinet and chamber orchestra that was done in 2012. I think that one is um themed to uh, 9-11, I think. What struck me on the list, it's got cool stuff, Madonna's album, Like a Virgin, The Police of Synchronicity. I'm getting old because all, a lot of the stuff they talk about is stuff that came out, you know, it's not stuff from the distant past. I'm like, yeah, Eurythmics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Their song, Sweet Dreams Are Made. Flash Dance, what a feeling, Margaritaville by Jimmy Buffett. I'm like, okay, you're amazed. Some of it's not already on the list, like John Lennon's song, Imagine who, of course, Yoko Ono helped write the lyrics. And uh, uh, this one of the more recent things, I think this is the first audio book. It's Pale Blue Dot, 
by Carl Sagan. It's a memoir of his about the space, space and exploration, what it all means and how it puts our place in the universe. And it's a, a very famous work. And this is the audio recording of that done by Carl Sagan. And in fact, I just saw a story that someone at NASA, a NASA official, took their oath on that book, Pale Blue Dot. But it's cool to see audiobooks in the mix here. The only thing I'll say is that I'm not really discovering a lot. Most of this is ex- immediately familiar to me, uh, like Ode to Billy Joe by Bobby Gentry, a great song. They should have done the whole album. Um, one thing, so you're not going to discover as much this year, but the one thing you might discover, and we have a link in our show notes, is Dorothy Thompson, a once hugely well-known commentator. She was a reporter, the first reporter kicked out of Germany by Hitler in 1936 or 33, maybe even. I forget when. But they are memorializing her analysis of the European situation for NBC Radio over a period of weeks in 1939, obviously, as war began to loom. So uh, that's interesting. That brings attention to some, you know, to people who've never heard of her, a woman who at one point was the most influential American woman alongside Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, so, and she's complicated. She's not a slam dunk. She's an interesting person. She had some good stuff and bad stuff, but her reporting. Uh, is very interesting. So that's cool to see. And we got a link on our show notes and you can hear it all. You know, there's nothing on here that you can't check out immediately. So that's kind of cool. Like Black Codes from the Underground, one of Wynton Marsalis's great albums. Oh, wow. Okay. And you know, I'm a Wynton Marsalis fan. Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, you know, that kind of wraps up Big Deal or Big Wolf for this weekend and moves us along that stairway to heaven toward Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And here's the thing. I'm surprised you didn't mention that I included Stairway to Heaven, much like the Library of Congress did in their list. Come again? I, I said you were, moves us along our Stairway to Heaven. And oh, you, you, oh. Didn't even, you didn't even like, come on. Oh, Drop, I'm, I'm, terrible. I'm dropping, you know, jokes here. And okay. yeah, you're giving me layups. Yeah. And here's a layup. We've got two stories about streamers because that's where all the news is. AMC Plus, the modest little streamer from AMC, the cable channel. They are going to introduce an ad tier later this year. Not a shock. They're going to have details this week. But ads, they say, will be woven in thoughtfully in a bespoke fashion. You know, they said that because I could never come up with something bespoke. They're going to weave their ads in, in a bespoke fashion to their TV shows. So it'll be very nicely done. Don't worry about it. Um, but everybody's doing ad tiers, aren't they? And of course, the big news is HBO Max Discovery Plus. Which is now called Max. Right. So you've got HBO, one of the most famous brands in the world, stands for quality. And over here you have Max, a generic shortened term of maximum or or the name max and you say should i choose the name brand that is well known all over the world or should i choose max why why max this is what happens with unchecked ego because this is basically david zaslov not wanting any remnant of the company he bought that's basically what's i i I think it's just we're not the only ones to say look Consumers will get used to this. So yeah. it's not like, it's not like uh, you know, HBO Max or whatever. It's not like it's going to affect it in the long run. But right. boy, what a dumb move. It's well, like, they'll still have HBO. When you open up Max, there'll be an HBO tile, a Discovery tile, or whatever, right? Right. But 
Yeah. I, I guess they said that like HBO was too limiting because it's, you know, things like Secession and Game of Thrones and it's things like sophisticated that. stuff that most, you know, like sophisticated adult stuff. Right. They wanted an even. Pl- I think that Zaslav and his team wanted an even playing field where HBO and Discovery were on the same of the same importance. And that's why, you know, and, and I get it. We won't call it either. We won't call it either one. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and I get it. I get it. But it's like you have a name brand that is recognized. They even have HBO Latin America. I mean, it's not like they said, oh, no, we have Max Latin America. No. They have HBO Latin America in, La- in South America. Use it to your advantage. Instead, they're like, no, we'd like to go through a rebranding exercise. Yeah, well, the nice thing is Max can be a friendly icon. It can be a friendly, hey, Max, you know, hi, hi, it's Max. You know, it's, you can imagine some adorable little mascot. It's the one to watch. That's what they say. It's the one Whom. to watch. As opposed to the one when you click on HBO. Oh, so it's called Max and now it won't shut up. Max is going to be $10 a month with ads. This is in North America, obviously. $16 without lads, and you get to offline download some stuff to watch later. And $20 for the Max version of Max, where you get like four streams. You can have multiple devices watching Max all at the same time. And more downloads to watch offline. It'll all launch in May. May 23rd, Max will be coming. So look forward to lots of Max. And boy, they sure announced a lot of stuff, didn't they? A new a new spinoff from the Big Bang Theory. Not a shocker because the young Sheldon has done extremely well. They're going to do a TV series based on the horror franchise Conjuring. They're okay. going to do another spinoff from Game of Thrones, this one based on the more comic novellas starring Duncan Egg. And of course, yes, a Harry Potter TV series. One season per book. So what is it? Eight books? Seven books? I don't know. I don't even know. It's eight movies and seven books. I got, so there'll be, uh, and you know what? That to me is not the crazy. I mean, you would think maybe they could just do a a Hogwarts school story, just like you could do Starfleet Academy, but redoing the Harry Potter books, it's been 20 years, 30 years uh, on it in a TV series. uh, That's different enough. You can do so much more in a season. If it's like, 10 episodes, I assume it'll be much longer than the movie, so you can just include a lot more of the book. You know, so, however, the, the big thing with the books, or sorry, the big thing about the movies, was mm. that everybody faulted them for being so beholden to the books and just jamming everything into into well, each movie. They criticized them as they each made a billion dollars, practically. Oh, yeah, so I know. It's they like- didn't criticize them that much. It worked. The, the, the TV show will be beholden to the books, for sure, but they'll be able to include everything, you know. Every word will be in there. My goodness. But I love this quote. I, I think that's a perfectly reasonable. It would get done eventually, so whatever. But God help the actors they cast having to measure up because the casting in the original film was amazing, uh, truly. Uh, but this quote, I mean, this is David Zaslav said, talking in his live stream about the unveiling of Max and its rebranded streaming service that goes live May 23rd. He said, this is our time. This is our chance. This is our rendezvous with destiny. <laughs> Dude, it's a, it's a multinational gazillion dollar corporation. Haven't they sort of had time and chances before? Is this really the time for HBO? Seems like they're kind of on top of the world already. Yeah, I just... A rendezvous with destiny. <laughs> well, he also said that he likes uh, theatrical... Uh... Uh, distribution. He's here's to movie theaters. Let's not rush to put them on the platform. I was like, okay, you know, we saw the data. We saw two years of data of putting movies on streaming. We had no agenda. 
And he said, we believe at Warner Brothers Discovery, there, there's a lot of content you watch alone, but it's really powerful when you go into theaters. So, you know what? At least he kind of he figured that one out. Yeah, there you go. So HBO Max Discovery Plus is dead. Uh, well, at least for now. We'll see Long live I mean. Max. Yeah. But you know what? I, I, I have at least one person I can, can talk about uh, this mm-hmm. week during our obituary section. Maybe not talk about, but I, I, I know of him. Uh, but why don't you start us off with Anne Perry, who died at the age of 84. Well, she's a famous crime writer. She sold tens of millions of copies, including her historical mystery starring Thomas Pitt and another historical mystery series starring William Monk. The Times of London named her one of the 100 masters of crime when they did a list. She also wrote a Christmas novella each year starting in 2003, which let readers combine their love of the holidays and murder. And 15 years into her very successful writing career as a name-brand author... The world discovered that Anne Perry was also a convicted murderer. Kate Winslet played her in the film Heavenly Creatures, a breakout for director Peter Jackson. Uh, that retold this true story of two friends, two girls who blunt to death one of the girl's mothers. And the attention and astonishment, of course, that a world-famous crime writer was in fact uh, originally had a different name and was convicted of murder. Well, it was enormous, but... Perry had paid her dues to society for taking part in the killing. And, well, that was kind of about it. The books kept on coming and kept selling. <laughs> you know what? Uh, if you haven't seen Heavenly Creatures, it is one of, I think it, it, it might even be her first movie, Kate Winslet. I could be wrong about that, but it was a very, very early on in one of Peter Jackson's early movies as well. And it's very, very good. Yeah, it's a very good movie. Now, jazz pianist Ahmad Jamal died at the age of 92. This guy, he was, he influenced so many jazz musicians. I mean, just, I mean, Miles Davis once said, all my inspiration comes from Ahmad Jamal. Of course, Miles Davis said a lot of things. So, (laughs) you know, you can take that with, I would say a grain of salt, but he was actually right. Critic Stanley Crouch, arguably the most influential and insightful writer on jazz said, only Charlie Parker was more important when it comes to a new flowering of jazz. Instead of flashy bebop, Jamal was thoughtful and stately. Everyone who came after is in his debt. I, you know, I agree. He is a, you know, a legend and uh, very un- unknown, actually, I would say. Yeah, well, relatively speaking, obviously. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, but I love this. Um, John Hammond signed him. John yeah. Hammond signed everybody. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Oh my God, he signed Ahmad Jamal too. He saw Ahmad Jamal at a New York nightclub and signed him. I mean, good Lord. Um, he always referred to jazz as American classical music. And uh, his big breakthrough came with the At the Pershing, but not for me. That's a great one to listen to. You may have heard his music on Clint Eastwood's film, The Bridges of Madison County. Bid Clint Eastwood being a huge. Uh, jazz fan and if you're looking for something start with Pershing or Free Flight from 1971 those are two great albums to start with but there's a lot of them and I love this story Uh, he always studied and learned the lyrics to the songs he played a lot of the great jazz musicians did you had to know when you were playing a song what the lyrics were what it meant what they were talking about and he told this story rather approvingly he said quote I once heard Ben Webster playing his heart out on a ballad and then all of a sudden he stopped I said, why did you stop, Ben? He said, I forgot the lyrics. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's playing an instrumental. He's, in, you know, he's not singing. He just forgot the lyrics. He said, oh, I can't keep going. 
Uh, that's yeah, hilarious. I, I can tell you as somebody who plays an instrument, it when you're playing instrumentals like that, it does help to know the lyrics because it helps you know the timing and when to come in. Uh, you know, if you're and doing what a solo. you're playing about, is it sad? Is it happy? Is it funny? Yeah. Is it serious? You got to know. Did you know Mad Magazine cartoonist Al Jaffe? He died at the age of 102. I did not, but this guy seems like such a hoot. I mean, you yeah. see the interviews with him and he's like, uh, he's just like, I don't know. I, you know, I didn't like fold outs, you know, the centerfold fold outs. And I thought, oh, you know, it'd be funny. Let's do a fold in. Ha 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 ha. That's a good one off. And he did that for Mad Magazine. He was an illustrator for Mad Magazine and he wrote all these visual jokes for them. Uh, and he did the, fo- the, you know, the, the, the cover fold in. And he did it once thinking, oh, that was kind of cool. Uh, no, <laughs> it became a staple for the magazine. Absolutely. He, uh, he worked at Mad Magazine. He's, uh, he was there in 1955, and after a few brief years away, he worked for them for the rest of his career. In 2016, the Guinness Book of World Records said Jaffe is the longest working cartoonist in comics history. And it was the fold-in, not the fold-out, but the fold-in. On the back cover, you'd see some elaborate, crazy picture like the Beatles. And they would be, you know, crazy, wacky, all sorts of things going on. And then when you folded it in onto certain, you know, you would know what to do. Suddenly you'd see the Beatles again, but they would look old and balding. You know, there was right. always the second joke claim. He did those for decades, more than 500 and all. In fact, he created a final fold-in to be run when he died, but he wouldn't die. So instead of waiting, he finally said, look, you know, when he retired, they ran his final fold-in to celebrate. That was at the age of 99. Wow. And that was, that was just three years ago. Because now, I don't even, a, they don't even publish that yeah, yeah, they, they were just in. Now, here's the cool thing. Um, if you take our podcast and you fold the first half and the second half of the podcast into each other digitally, you will hear a secret backward recorded message from Sperling and I. Yes. And by the way, it will be half as long. So only an hour and a half. <laughs> and no like, show next true. week. No show next week. That's true. And we're under an hour right now. So I think we should, we should wrap it up before we somehow find something to talk about for 10 minutes. Please, please. Well, you know what? I I always like to remind people that you can subscribe to us so that you don't miss, if not next week's episode, then the episode after that. We can be found in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you get podcasts. That's where you can find us. And please do rate and review us in any one of those podcast aggregators that allows you to do so. It does help us out when you do that. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find those ways to subscribe to us or ways to email us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can leave us a voicemail at 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter, at least for now, at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. And we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, whoismgmt.com. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's HiMax.com. Is it taken yet? Doesn't look, I don't know what's going on. It said this site can't be reached. <laughs> I don't know. If I were them, I'd be taking that. I'm just saying. I, don't I, would, I would think so. Good idea. Good idea. Well, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on whatever that website is, why not head on over to MichaelGiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on CelluloidJunkie.com. Until next week, or actually two weeks from now, play nice. Oh, 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 oh